Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Here at Enduring Interest, we are in the midst of exploring books and essays that address the great challenge of the 20th century, totalitarianism and ideology. Coming soon, we'll have a conversation with Claire Kavanaugh, a professor of Slavic languages and literatures at Northwestern University, on two poems by Czesław Miłosz, You Who Wronged, and Child of Europe. And next up, we'll have Nathan Pankowski on to discuss Francois Furet's book, The Passing of an Illusion, The Idea of Communism in the 20th Century. Please remember to suggest books or essays and guests. You can message us on Twitter, and our handle is at the EIPod. My guest today is James Pontuso, and we'll be discussing Václav Havel's trilogy of plays, Audience, The Unveiling, and Protest all revolving around the same character called Ferdinand Vanyek. They were written between 1975 and 1978. Jim is the Charles Patterson Professor of Government and Foreign Affairs at Hampton Sydney College. His latest book is called Nature's Virtue, and in 2004 he published a book called Václav Havel, Civic Responsibility in the Postmodern Age. He's also been a Fulbright Scholar in the Czech Republic on two occasions. It's my great pleasure to welcome Jim to the Enduring Interest podcast. Well, it's nice to be here. and It's always nice to gather with uh, someone else that knows as much as I do about Czech things. Yeah, that's nice. Well, we'll see. Um, yeah, I, I hope uh, we can inspire listeners to uh, dip into to some of Havel's plays and some of his essays, but I think he's a, a thinker and a statesman who's worthy of being studied. And so I think it'll be pretty easy to convince our listeners of that. Um, why don't you start by just introducing us to Havel, uh, the man? Uh, he lived an extraordinary life, so kind of give us a little thumbnail, thumbnail sketch, uh, and then we'll we'll dig into the plays. Well, uh, just a few things about uh, his uh, milieu, his background. Czechoslovakia, and especially the Czech region, was an extraordinarily educated and sophisticated society. Um, they had almost 100% literacy in uh, 1900. So we can't even match that now in our own country. And the other thing about Czech uh, society is, well, it's avant-garde. After all, we say when somebody's avant-garde, they're bohemian. So this is the background for Havel. He is both an extraordinarily sophisticated man and bohemian. His plays are, are quite absurd. We'll talk about that later. Ha Havel comes, uh, was born into a quite rich, wealthy, and successful uh, family. Uh, it was certainly a family of success, a meritocracy, if I might, I might say, uh, his family had a lot of real estate, but they built low-income housing. Uh, his family had the first a mall in in Europe, right, in, in the square at uh, Wenceslav Square, the main square in Prague. His wealthy uncle, uh, Lucerna Palace, by the way, his wealthy uncle produced movies, and that's how Havel sort of got interested in playwriting. 
All of this came to an end in 1948 when the communists took over. All of Havel's family wealth was expropriated. His family had to live in a small attic apartment. <clears throat> and he was not allowed to go to school. He wanted to go to the School of Arts at Charles University. He had to become a, a st study engineering instead, which he wasn't uh, very happy with. He was always, uh, for most of his life, an outcast. Uh, he didn't feel comfortable with his wealth, nor comfortable when all his wealth uh, was taken uh, was taken away. And he was a kind of a, a rebel. Uh, you wouldn't call him a baby boomer, but he he sort of was interested in those kinds of things. He had an, an extraordinary uh, friendships with other artists. A, f a famous story about uh, he and Milan Kundera, the great. Czech writer Milos Forman, who did one of the most brilliant films, Amadeus, uh, directed it, and Havel at Slavia Cafe, right on the Balatava River, all drinking at about 16 and going to meet the future Nobel Prize winning poet Yaroslav Seifert. They, they were only kids and they would go up and ask him how to write. This a background of uh, wanting to have a kind of artistic freedom led Havel to be involved in uh, the, the Prague Spring. Maybe you can mention a few words. You know maybe even more about it than I do, the Prague Spring. I don't want to be simply talking here. Yeah, well, Havel's, during that period in the uh, early to mid-60s, things started to loosen up a bit, right? The country went through a Stalinist phase in the 1950s, early 60s, which was uh, super oppressive, really horrible people sent to labor camps and uranium mines and, and awful things like that. And uh, things started to loosen up a little bit in the 60s. And, and Havel started writing a few plays that were actually able to be performed in Prague. Um, and then um, I think The Garden Party is 1965, if my memory is right. And um, or 64 in the memorandum, I think 65. And that brought him some international attention. And so this brief period of, of um, opening, at least artistically and culturally in Prague, brought Havel to the attention uh, of playwrights and, and the international press. So that's really when he started to gain a kind of international reputation. And then, of course, the Prague Spring is this moment in 1968 when there's a kind of reform movement within the Communist Party. Eventually, the Soviets figure out what's happening and, and don't like that, and they send in the tanks and crush crush this reform movement. And I guess maybe I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Then, then we get to the, uh, the era that we're going to talk about today, which, which is called normalization, which is the, uh, the Czech term um, that the, the hardliners who came back into power in the late 60s, early 70s, they actually use this as, as a kind of way to signal that they're going to return to the, to the more orthodox mode of communism. So this is called the, sometimes called the post-totalitarian moment. And it's odd of the totalitarian moment that it was still idealistic. People thought they were really going to reform the world. They, they believed in Marxist principles. They believed in equality. They believed that you, human beings were ultimately good by nature. And if you freed them from their strictures, their economic uh, oppression, that they would be free and they would also be communal. That is, they could be utterly trusted to act on behalf of the community and not simply themselves. So the communist totalitarian era tried to put this into place 
and it was an utter catastrophe. The road to hell was paved with good intentions and probably the greatest, not probably, the greatest tyranny that ever existed in, in human history. Now, the era of normalization, the post-totalitarian era was a much more subtle form of oppression. No one believed in the ideals of communism anymore, but no one wanted to give up and say, I quit, we made a big mistake. So nobody went, not many people went into terrible conditions, but there were mechanisms of control, interrogation, investigation, detention, searches, bugging, the secret police, the Czech SDB, uh, put social pressure on all, all the whole society. And uh, the whole idea was don't cause trouble. Fit in, follow the rules, be quiet, we'll leave you alone, but if you stir up trouble, we're going to come after you. The, the authorities are going to come after you. And this is exactly what Havel decided to do. He probably could have been a writer on Czech television because he was an, an extraordinary talent, but he just couldn't fit into this dull, boring, uh, totalitarian way of, of thinking. And so uh, he decided to become what we in the West would call a dissident, uh, to dissent from this uh, boring, awful, uh, stupid society. And all of the dissidents I've ever met object to that term because they argue they weren't the dissidents. What was the dissident was the unnatural way that the communist authorities govern the country. It was against the, even the most simple principles of human nature. For example, that people would love their families more than they love outsiders or the community. So th this, is the, this is the milieu in which uh, Havel lived and, and from which the Vanyak plays arose. Uh, yeah, so, so let's yeah let's talk yeah. about the get into the the origins of those plays a little bit. Um, the first one, audience, is written early 1975, which is around the same time that he wrote his famous letter to Gustav Husak, the general secretary of the Communist Party. This is Havel's first kind of major public act of dissent. He had he had given some speeches at at writers' union meetings in the in the 60s that got him into a little trouble. But this letter to Husak is really sort of the first big public dissident moment. He says, and I think it's in Disturbing the Peace, that he wrote this play audience around the same time. And he wrote it as a kind of lark just for a few friends to kind of entertain one another. And they would meet at his little country house uh, north of Prague, Radicek, and, and perform these, these little one-act one act plays. I don't know how, how I guess I remember I remember you talking about this in in uh, in your book. How seriously do you take this idea that this play that has now become famous and performed in various countries around the world and translated into lots of languages? Uh, do you think Havel's being honest when he says he just wrote it as a joke for a few friends? Um, Havel is known for his self-effacing humor, and uh, I don't think he—I don't remember any instance when he actually comp complimented himself. Uh, his in unbelievably charming method was always to act as if he was uh, less talented than he was. And and uh, I met him once, and it's really an extraordinary talent that you can seem like you you have no 
no ability whatsoever and no gravitas whatsoever. And, uh, and then suddenly be the most important man in the room. I really do think it's literally true he wrote it for a few friends, but it's also true that Havel was a playwright, and he talks a lot in, in, in other places about how theater is an attempt to, to make a contact with, with the human race. He's writing about the particular things, but he's writing about more general themes, unlike philosophers who would write about justice. He's, he's writing a little bit in here about what it's like to be in his own country and also what it's like to be oppressed and the kinds of things that people have to put up with when they live in a society in which there is absolutely no human or personal freedom and, and the kind of pressures uh, one is under. And that, of course, raises the question about human freedom, human dignity, justice. Uh, I think that's what, uh, what Havel wanted to get at. And even if he was inspired to write it only for a few friends, it still took on deeper meaning. Yeah, and it took on that meeting quickly. It, just a quick, a quick story to to um, to explain to our listeners how this uh, this character Vanyak and these plays kind of spread like like wildfire. After he wrote this first play, Audience, was that uh, Havel and his buddy Pavel Landowski, who's a famous actor, went to a, an underground recording studio of a of a musician, and they recorded an audio version of the plays. Uh, the audio cassette uh, eventually got smuggled out um, by a junior, a Swedish junior hockey player. And then these cassettes, <laughs> you know, spread around the country. And, and so Havel tells the story of, of picking up a, a hitchhiker during the winter uh, who looked, you know, cold and pathetic on the side of the road. And the hitchhiker got in and he popped this cassette into, into Havel's uh, player in his car. And sure enough, it was the recording of, of audience. And so ever since this cassette uh, recording some of the phrases that are uttered by various characters in these, these plays have kind of entered into the vernacular uh, and were were said in you know in jest to, by people uh, during this this normalization era. So that's just sort of one indication that may, Havel may have thought he was doing something insignificant by entertaining his friends, but I think he realized quite quickly that this, this Vanyak character and the characters with whom he, Vanyak, interacts in the plays um, took on a kind of larger cultural meaning um, and, and were very powerful um, in, uh, in, in their own country and then, of course, soon internationally. So why don't you tell us, uh, Jim, a little bit about this main character, Vanyak, and, and the people with whom he interacts, right? There's only, he's the main character, they're, they're one-act plays, and there's only four other characters. Um, and so just talk about who Vanyak is, what we learned about him with the limited information he has and, and who Vanyak meets uh, in the course of these plays. Uh, Havel and Vanyak are, were incredibly shy in an odd sort of way. Um, uh, Havel didn't, was, di was always the center of the room in a, in a strange sort of way. But w when you met him, he was very reticent. He didn't uh, present his point of view. And this, uh, this method of attachment to other people or performance to other people was, is what Vanyak has. These plays uh, grow out of the genre in which Havel writes, absurd theater. And uh, back to your first question about why he wrote for more than, absurd theater was a way to write uh, in the 
One, because of course, Bohemia uh, is Bohemian, so absurd theater was quite avant-garde. Another way is that you, it was so absurd that you couldn't get in trouble with the authorities. Because who knows what these uh, plays are about? They don't seem to directly attack uh, the government. They seem to be peripheral. They really don't talk about government political issues. Hobble is famous for saying he doesn't ever talk about politics. Um, uh, um, the, the other thing is they're funny. Uh, they have humor in them. And the problem with real reformers like communists or people who think they're, you know, in charge of the people's business is they oftentimes have absolutely no sense of humor. I don't think in all the years I uh, followed communist leaders, none of them ever made a joke. They might have done so in private, but they were, they, let, me, they, let me tell you, none of them were Ronald Reagan uh, at, at jokes. So the absurd plays are funny. You can disguise yourself. And also you can, uh, uh, you can uh, make a point um, without going to jail uh, if, 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 you, if you want. Now, uh, Vanyak is, like Havel himself, evidently a dissident. Someone who has an international reputation as a writer and someone who is known outside the communist world. He's known in the West. And Vanyak, like Havel, uh, is not allowed to practice his uh, profession. He's not allowed to work in theater. He's not allowed to write. He doesn't follow the communist line. We don't know all that, actually. It's not laid out in the play, but it is sort of insinuated that he has this, uh, this sort of reputation outside the country. And we meet uh, uh, Vanyak as he goes to the head of the brewery, the brewmaster, sometimes translated foreman. So he goes into the brewmaster's uh, uh, brew office for uh, an audience, and we have no idea why. And you can read this play at the beginning, and you have absolutely no idea what's happening in the play. Because the brewmaster says, how are you? I'm fine, Vanyak answers. Would you like some tea? No, thank you. Uh, there is this small talk that's uh, going on. Evidently, however, the foreman uh, is, is nervous because he drinks beer constantly. He actually drinks 11 bottles of beer while this conversation is going on, if you count them. Um, this is before he passes out from drinking 11 bottles of beer. And then he actually passes out on the desk and wake, wakes up and drinks another one. He's also moved by this uh, prodigious uh, alcohol consumption to go get up and relieve himself a number of times. So th this isn't much of a plot if you think about it. What is the plot, however, is that the foreman is trying to get Vanyak to do something and we don't know what it is. It, he marches around the topic. He goes this way and that, the foreman. Vanyak is almost a cipher. He hardly ever, yes, no, okay, uh, I'm fine. Uh, but what it really turns out is this. The foreman wants Vanyak to write a few words to the foreman's friend, who happens to be a secret police agent. And this boyhood friend of the foreman has asked for reports on the dissident Vanyak. And the problem is the foreman has no idea what to report. Vanyak shows up for work. He does his job. He never complains. 
Occasionally, he takes an extra tea break when it's cold. Uh, once in a while, he goes uh, down and has um, uh, he has drinks with one of the uh, cocktail waitresses, something else that Havel was known for. And uh, and once he had uh, the machinist come and fix the burner in his uh, the. Uh, uh, the, his home heating system, and, that, and that's all. This was widely done, by the way, because you couldn't get anyone to show up without paying them. So what the foreman wants is for Vanyek to, he's a famous writer, why don't you just write me a few lines about yourself, and I'll turn that into my friend, and then the SDB won't get me the foreman in trouble. Yeah, so in other words, find spy yeah. on yourself. And this was a widely, we should say to our to our listeners, this was um, not an atypical practice. If you were, uh, you know, the head of your department in in some job and wanted to protect your employees, you'd have to put together, you'd have to add things to put things into people's personnel files. Everyone everyone had a, a personnel file that was monitored closely by the the SDB. So, you know, I've met lots of people who actually wrote, did write reports on themselves and, you know, just, just wrote nonsense. And it was just a way for an employer to be decent to the, to the employees and, in, in various uh, workplaces. Maybe one general question or, or just one comment that you can react to. I remember reading these plays for the first time. What struck me was that the plays aren't you know they are not obvious exercises in in sort of vindicating the dissident attitude and the dissident worldview uh the plays to me sort of elicit a great deal of of sympathy for the brewmaster and the other characters that we'll talk about in a minute and so that's it was just amazing to me that you get this i don't know difficult evocation uh of a situation where there does there there don't seem to be any good answers uh, in, in terms of of what the right thing to do is. So it's not obvious that uh, that Vanyak shouldn't inform on himself, right? It it would help the brewmaster a, a lot, and the brewmaster is this working class guy who's kind of going through life doing the best he can, right? So he doesn't he doesn't appear to be a villain. I don't know. So maybe just react yes, uh, to, well, react to that. yeah, and so uh, there were fifteen million check. Czechoslovaks, and it's estimated there were two million re people who reported to the secret police. That is a system which really watches everything you do. So it really, it really is the case that the brewmasters caught uh, in this web of uh, under underhanded spying. Uh, it's this is so far from what an American. Uh, experiences that it's hard for Americans to actually understand that this conversation we're having right now every word would be reported to some authority imagine uh, it would be read by a secret policeman and by the way we'd both be in trouble uh, but uh, that that uh, that I concept is almost foreign to us yet it everybody was watched at all times and everything you did was somehow uh, it was possible uh, to be reported and so this, and you're right to say this brewmaster is caught in this web. He's not famous. If he doesn't give reports on the famous dissident Vanyak, he could get him himself in trouble, particularly because he's done something wrong. He's sold beer 
directly to a pub and pocketed the money. Also something that was done in communist countries because you you couldn't make any money on your own. So uh, they had a saying, he who does not steal from the state deprives his family. So everybody stole from the state, but this guy now, the, uh, the brewmaster is now caught stealing and his friend mentions that. And now we need a report, by the way, a negative report, something that uh, that Vanyak did wrong on, uh, not not these, you know, he had tea and he went to the pub. The brewmaster is so caught, he actually cries at one point. He's so distraught. He cries out, you know, you're famous. Uh, nothing's going to happen to you if I don't turn in a report on you. I'm going to go to jail. Uh, uh, you, you have to help me. We're all in this together. This is really odd uh, because we're all in this together to hate communists. Um, but uh, And so uh, the final scene in the play, as you uh, mentioned to me uh, when we were talking about this together, uh, is really strange because at the end of the play, Vanyak, after the brewmaster passes out and wakes up and has another beer, Vanyak changes his attitude. And the brewmaster says, are you all right? And he says, no, everything's screwed up. Actually, that's not the word he uses. And it's all crap. And the brewmaster says, you want a beer? And I'm going to drink, a, yes, I'll have a beer rather than just tea. Vanyak doesn't like beer, as did Havel not like beer. So what we have is the intimation that Havel, uh, that Vanyak is going to write a report on himself because he, uh, he does know that the brewmaster is in a difficult situation. Now, just to make a point, it's true that Vanyak is going to go along, but it is also true that we see the brewmaster is more caught than Vanyak. Uh, the brewmaster is doing this spying out of fear. Vanyak is helping the brewmaster out of a kind of nobility or decency or magnanimity, if you want to put it that way. He's not really helping the regime. He's doing it to help a particular person get out of their trouble. So. Vanyak is both a reformer, we can see he's more decent, more noble uh, than the brewmaster who's a cowering, but he's not self-righteous about it. He knows how difficult, it's easy to know what's wrong. Actually, this is generally true in life. It's harder to fix it. And Vanyak is sympathetic to the plight of people, all people in, caught up in these awful situations, but he doesn't say, now we're gonna do this and you'll do it or else I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, put you, I'll get you in trouble for, for not following me. And I think that's part of the charm of both Havel's writing and Havel himself, that he never was so strident when he was actually in power himself. Obviously he's, he's wary and the character is too wary of, of self-righteousness, but also unbending in his attachment to principle. That's the thing that's fun to do with the students, right? You can't, you can't prove, at least uh, using the text, that Ferdinand Vanyak decides to inform on himself at the end of the play. All, all we know is he comes back in to the office and he, he drinks a beer. He, didn't, he hadn't done that before, so... You know, it's it's. He uh, swears. He swears something he uh, he never would have done before. Yeah. So he sort of leaves 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 things up in the air, and but I think you're right. Um, I mean, overall, um, I think the the portrait that 
Havel draws of this brewmaster, uh, the foreman leads you to be at least sympathetic to his plight, uh, even if you don't endorse him trying trying to to lure Vanyak into this web, you sympathize with his plight. Uh, but maybe that's a good place to to um, to connect to the next play, uh, because I think uh, that the characters that Vanyak uh, meets in the next play maybe are perhaps less uh, sympathetic. We move to the second play in the trilogy called The Unveiling, and this time Vanyak is going to uh, a little house party with two of his old friends, Michael and, and Vera. We don't really know a ton about them other than that Michael must have some white collar job which affords him the ability to, to travel because he, he Michael's able to acquire lots of knickknacks and, and things that a normal, uh, certainly a normal Czech family, certainly the brewmaster wouldn't have. And so they have certain, certain privileges and they've invited Vanyak to their house to unveil these, these new kind of artifacts. It's sort of like you, you buy a new house and decorate it and you invite some friends over to, to show it off. Um, and so that's the, the setting uh, for the second play. Um, so maybe Jim, talk a little bit about um, what you think Hobble's up to by, by uh, sort of changing uh, the environment that we see Havel navigating or Vanyak, rather, Vanyak, Havel, Vanyak, <laughs> that we see Vanyak navigating the second second play. Michael and Vera are probably in a technocratic class. And just by point of history, everybody was equal in communist countries except for people who had a technocratic skill. And you needed them so much, uh, technocrats, that you, uh, that you had to pay them more. So these people lead a much better uh, life than the brewmaster and indeed most working people in the Czech lands, uh, in all communist countries. It's, I suppose, ironic to say, but true nonetheless, that uh, in the workers' paradise of communism, people worked all the time for low pay. So, but these people are uh, be uh, better paid, and th they have this lo lovely place they've just redone. They have a new child, and they Actually, I'm more sympathetic to them. I think we've chatted about this. I'm more sympathetic than you are. They, uh, they want their idea of uh, freedom. Uh, the idea of freedom is good taste. They, they want to be able to have good of oh, fashion. Uh, so. Of, you know, Martha, Martha Stewart really is free, if you know what I mean. She gets to do exactly what she wants, nice pillows and, and nice food, and her drapes always look good, you know. So, and that's uh, Michael and, and Vera. They want to be free, but they want they express that for uh, freedom in their own particular uh, stylish uh, way. Now, they also are a little bit... Uh, well, not a little. They're a pain in the neck because they're so nice. They give uh, Havel lots and lots of advice. Uh, they offer much unsolicited help to him. He should, let me see, straighten out his legal problems. Again, a reference to Havel's uh, legal problems. Stop changing waitresses. I won't comment of the relationship of Havel to that comment. Spend less time at pubs. Avoid uh, long-haired dissidents, redecorate his apartment, uh, get in shape, take a cooking class, resolve his differences with his wife, improve his sex life, and have children. 
And actually, the list goes on. And stop. Now, I if, was going to say the other the other funny one, right? Is they is is uh, Michael says to uh, to Vanyak, stop yeah. hanging out with those horrible communists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some of them uh, were were communists. Uh, By which he means right the people who were expelled from the party in the early part of the normalization era, right? Some of some of yeah. Havel's fellow playwrights. So. Some of uh, um, some of Havel's members. Uh, the person who served the longest prison term for being a member of Charter 77 was a communist, a former communist, as yeah. you rightly said. Well, so, so how about, why, don't, why don't you say a little bit more, though, about what's their motive? Um, what do you think their motive is for trying to fix him? What, I what, think, are, what, are they, what are they doing? I think uh, myself, my own view of them is quite sympathetic. They want to live a normal life. They want to have the ability to be free. They want to have their own apartment. And they think there is the best life, the good life, is the middle-class life, the bourgeois life, as it's called, in which you, you, you have a lot of latitude uh, about personal taste. And Havel uh, uh, and Vanyak, his character, is always in trouble. He, he, he doesn't worry about his job. He doesn't worry about his family life. He has... Uh, indeed, if you were to be a dissident, you really can't expect to have a normal life because you're going to be hounded by the police. Um, uh, you're, you're always going to be outside the bounds of, uh, of society. People would, they talk about this, people would avoid seeing Vanyak and Havel on the street because they knew of his uh, reputation. So I, I, th I think they are thoroughly dedicated to a middle-class life. Um, if they lived in San Francisco, they'd be real good liberal Democrats. Uh, they're, they'd be kind, they'd be sympathetic to all, all people suffering. But in post-totalitarian Czechoslovakia, they look just like a selfish, narrow-minded, shallow human beings. And um, this is actually an indication uh, of something maybe deeper, that Havel raises the question about ordinary, everyday uh, life, that you could make it into something, the global culture, if you will, uh, could be really shallow, shallow, narrow, you could not believe in anything. And we see that in the decorations they have, they mix together Chinese, Japanese, in Indian, uh, American scimitar. Indian yeah, yeah. Uh, scimitar, and and they denature them. They take the meaning out of them. They also have a Catholic uh, confessional, and they they have that in their house as a decoration. But it's lost its meaning and its relationship to God as a way to uh, human beings trying trying to uh, you know get around. Not really, but trying uh, trying to not to be sinful. That's one of the reasons you have confession. Not to I'm not going to do that again. It's too embarrassing. Now the problem with this way of life, though, it's in indicative of of the attempt by human beings to fully control everything they do uh, to be it can complete command and when that happens the only standard of what's right and wrong or true and false is science that's why they're technocrats and the problem with science as the only mo mode of truth is that science can tell you how to do things but it can't tell you what to do with what you have and the famous example is you you know you build you split the atom and do you use it 
to make people's houses warmer, you know, and air conditioned, uh, build power plants, or do you blow people up? And so this is a huge problem that Howell is uh, bringing up. And one of the solutions that modern society has moved toward is this sort of relativism or postmodernism. People actually like Michael and Ver, it's not clear they believe in anything. It's not clear uh, they're dedicated to anything. It's not clear that this isn't just their lives, uh, their morals are not just chosen like their furniture. Right. And I think, and I think how uh, uh, wants to show through the character of Vandyck, no, there, there is an, a world in which the virtues, in this case, courage, are, are really predominate. And you can't just pick and choose your way of life and your virtues, the way you pick your furniture. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to say, it seems to me that, that uh, this materialism, you know, this sort of hyper bourgeois life that they've chosen, Michael and Vera seem to know that it's empty and not satisfying at some level because they need Vanyek's approval of that life, right? Precisely because he's not part of it and precisely because they see him as a kind of moral exemplar, right? They want him to leave that and approve of their life, you know, and, and then they'll feel better about themselves. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's a nice uh, way to put it. They feel they want someone to, they want someone who's famous and dedicated and has a moral uh, authority to be them, uh, and that would make their life okay. There is one point, however, in which they uh, rec recognize the existential crisis of being alive, or as Heidegger would put it, they, they recognize being, when they talk about the future of their child, their newborn child, newborn child, because after all, they're now in charge, and they have to ask them themselves the question, as any parent does with their child, what is a good life? And how do I lead my child towards a good life? They seem to have you know, th thrown that question off in a kind of avant-garde postmodernism, they're really postmodern or relativism. That is, we can't answer that question, so let's just live. But when it comes to their child, they're uncertain. So I think there's two points. Yours is a good one. Vanyak has to legitimate their uh, way of life, and they're really worried about how, how to bring out their kid well. Right, right. I mean, I guess the other, the other thing I would say um, about their attitude toward their friend Vanyak is connected to, a, to an argument that is made by Vanyak's interlocutor in the third play, whose name is Stanyak, <laughs> just confusing, but we'll get to him in a second. Stanyak says something like, the dissidents are a kind of living reproach to the people who compromise themselves at various levels with the regime for the sake of this kind of stable, decent life. Uh, and it, so it seems to me Vanyak is a kind of, Michael and Vera know that, that Vanyak's very existence is a kind of living reproach to the choices that they've made, right? Even though, even though Vanyak isn't, isn't um, you know, actively denouncing them, they take Vanyak's choice choices that he's made in his life, his decision not to compromise himself in any way as a, as a rejection of what they've done. So it's very hard for them to be friends, really, across, across these boundaries. And it's even easier for the audience to see 
that Varnak is more noble than the brewmaster and more courageous and uh, decent than Vera and Michael. So it, it is interesting that it is in opposition to these characters that you see the uncovering of a better way of life, if you will, of the natural virtues. Varnik doesn't say much. He doesn't do much. Uh, he's particularly nice to them. This, uh, the ending of this is also a model because uh, he's going to leave uh, with this deluge of uh, self-help book advice. He's going he's to leave, and Vera cries and says, you're selfish. And again, Vainik, who is, has had enough of them, comes back and spends the, the evening with them. Uh, I think, again, showing his magnanimity, his nobility, because what they really want is to live a normal middle-class life. And who, uh, I like middle-class life. It's kind of nice, you know, uh, you have heat and you're not cold and you go to the grocery store and they have all the food you want. I think he, he's sympathetic to them, and yet we see the difference at the same time. He's right. never self-righteous with them. Yeah. So let's use that transition to the third play. So we, we see Vanyak in the in audience with uh, working class. You know, he meets a proletarian, you could say. Second play, Vanyak meets kind of bourgeois technocrats, uh, political technocrats. And then the third play, you could say for the first time, Vanyak, I think you argue this in your book, in fact, Vanyak meets a kind of equal in that Stanyak is a fellow intellectual. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the, uh, the, the setting for the third play, who this guy Stanyak is. Stanyak seemed to have been associated with the communists during their idealistic stage. But in 1968, the implication is uh, that he was all in favor of the Prague Spring, the opening of uh, the society. One of uh, Vanyak's allies in, um, in forwarding the idea of freedom that took really the country of Czechoslovakia by storm. But then during this dull, boring era of the uh, normalization, uh, this post-totalitarian era, he sold out. And he started to pursue his profession as a writer and intellectual. He started writing for the communist, and he's even written uh, screenplays for Czech television, which was really boring during this era. <laughs> and uh, uh, they used to show the wheat uh, uh, farmers, you know, for 25-minute segments. They'd show wheat growing for 25 minutes. It's unusual that Stanek would invite Vanyak to his apartment because obviously they haven't seen each other in a long time. And it turns out that Stanyak wants Vanyak to do something. He wants him to write a letter of protest to the West. Uh, evidently, again, Vanyak is famous or uh, in the West or well-known in the West, has some influence, therefore, if he sends a protest into the West, it, that protest will resonate back and have an influence on the Czech government, the Czech communist government. And it turns out that Stanyak wants a letter to get a pop musician, Juvarik, is that how I say it? Juvarik, out of prison. Again, this is semi-autobiographical because Havel went to jail for the plastic people of the universe. Just as an aside, I was in the room once when uh, at Charter 77 conference, the 30th, and plastic people of the universe started to play. 
And I immediately went to the exit so my ears would not be permanently damaged. <laughs> uh, I was interrupted in leaving uh, by this fellow in front of me who was about my size, rather short and sort of el politely elbowed me out of the way and it was Václav Havel. Uh, he, they didn't, he didn't like their music either. So here's a guy who goes to jail for a, uh, <laughs> a bunch of musicians. He can't, they were very loud. Uh, at any rate, uh, so this fellow, the pop star, has gotten Stanik's daughter pre pregnant out of wedlock and the father feels some, you know, uh, sympathy for the guy because of course he's, uh, loves his daughter. So what to do? And Stanik doesn't know what to do. So he invites over Varnik, who's famous, and maybe Varnik's protest, uh, a letter sent uh, to the West will get this. There's a lot of artists uh, in the West who will support fellow artists. Uh, and uh, he's hope, Stanik is hoping that Varnik's letter will get this, uh, his daughter's pa papa baby out of jail. And Steinick mentions this letter, and much to his uh, surprise, Weinick pulls out of his briefcase the very letter uh, that Steinick had wanted him to write. There it is, the letter. And the whole play revolves around whether Steinick should sign it or not. And it, this is really a moral crisis for Steinick. Do I sign this letter that I asked my old friend, now dissident, to, uh, to write for me, he signed it, uh, but should I sign, sign it? Yeah, we and, should say this is the apex of, of this particular play when Vanyak pulls out the, the petition, the protest letter with all the signatures attached to it and kind of hands it to, to Stanyak. This results in far and away, right, the longest speech in any of the uh, of the three plays. Stanyak yes. gives this... this uh, very lengthy, I think a few few pages long, kind of philosophical, very precise pros and cons discourse on the effect his signature would have on him and his inner life. But he calls that the subjective side of the question versus the objective results that might happen if his signature were to appear. It's a very strange departure, right, from from the previous two plays because there are no, there are no lengthy speeches really whatsoever in, until this point. So that's kind of an interesting device uh, in itself. There's also one other thing that's unusual about this play, which I know you've noticed, but uh, this is the only time Vanyak ever gets angry. Uh, Steinick accuses him of uh, siding with the, of selling out when Vanyak was in prison. Something, right, right, uh, right. A, a letter that Havel actually wrote after he'd been interrogated for 72 hours without much of a break. And he signed a letter saying that, Havel signed a letter saying that Charter 77, I don't know, uh, this, you know, wasn't the world's greatest organization. As soon as he got out, he said, uh, you know, I was being interrogated for 72 hours. I didn't really mean it. But Havel felt guilty about that. And, Right uh, in his real life, and and Vanyak, really, this is a sore spot with him. He loses his temper for a short time, but still loses his temper. I think uh, one of the things that you mentioned, he's on equal footing now. He's not with someone who uh, is obviously just a poor brewmaster or sort of a a very sweet, nice middle class person. He's on his own territory now. He's with an intellectual. He's with a writer. It's fair combat if he loses his temper. So he does. 
uh, let, let Steinick ha have it for, for this. Although I have to say, Steinick feels a little uh, guilty himself. And by the way, this long speech gives some interesting excuses. Will it really make the, my daughter's fate better? Uh, right. If I sign this letter, will it, instead of uh, Juvarik becoming a cause celeb with the West, will he become a cause celeb with the communist authorities and they'll give him a longer term? In other words, now we're really going to, we'll, we'll show you guys, we're going to put this guy in jail for 10 years, not three. Also, the problem is, are the dissidents doing any good? Does this dissident movement have, what is the end point? Right. Are they ever going to win? And there was no guarantee that communism would fall. I mean, for those of us who remembered, it came as an absolute shock that communism was going to fall, collapse like, like a house of cards. Very few people predicted it. The CIA did not predict, predict it. The British intelligence did not predict it. I guess the KGB did predict it, but they weren't talking about it. Um, and certainly the, the, this system would simply disintegrate and there would be no remnants of it. How could you predict such a thing? It was really one of the most stunning, other than the coronavirus, the most stunning events, uh, public events in my life. Uh, so, uh, and this is a good question to ask. Is all this nonsense, nonsense Steinick would say you're doing, actually going to help in the end? Or are people like me who insidiously, Steinick, undermine the regime by maybe chipping away at the edges, having a little more freedom uh, of expression, maybe producing a show that shows a little bit more of, uh, of the way life really is. Is that more effective? And one last argument, Steinick has some friends in the communist government and he's called them. And does this behind the scenes influence, is it more effective than Vinick's public humiliation of the communist uh, authorities in the country. And these are re really quite interesting arguments. Yeah. Not ones that now with the being Monday morning quarterbacks, we know the dissidents were right, but you certainly didn't know it in 1978 when this was written, 77, maybe this right. one was written. Yeah. 78. 78. Yeah. 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 And so, and then of course we learn at the end of the, the very end of the play, that we don't know why it could have been the result of Stanyak's backroom dealing, but we do learn that Jaburak has been has been released, so there doesn't turn out to be a need for Stanyak to sign, and so the the play sort of resolves itself. But I guess my question to you then is: Do you think? I mean, how how sympathetic do we think Havel wants us to be? towards Stanyak? I mean, is it, I guess, are the three plays sort of doing the exact same things in the sense that they get us to appreciate the web in which these people are enveloped, whether it be the brewmaster, Michael and Vera, or Stanyak, or do you think there's a way that um, Havel might invite, invite us maybe to judge, you know, Stanyak a little more harshly than we judge the brewmaster? So I'll tell you a personal story. My my good friend and the director of the Czech Fulbright program, one time we were doing interviews to, for Fulbright uh, Czechs to come to the United States, and this guy came in, and he was a Stanyak character alike. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, he was he was smooth, and he was smart, and he, he came in, and uh, Agarupka said to me, uh, guys like that make my skin crawl. 
<laughs> so my answer to you is uh, uh, Steinick makes my skin crawl. Uh, and that's a good thing that uh, these sort of uh, people who would en can end up in any form of government and rise to the top, that he would have made a really good Nazi Steinick. He, he would have been fine in uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, if he could speak uh, Arabic. Any form of government, Steinick's going to land on his feet. And oh, they, that's interesting. That's interesting. They, uh, he, he makes my skin crawl. So you're, uh, so you're much, much less sympathetic to him than you are to Michael and Vera. For I am. Okay. On the other hand, he has some good arguments, you know? Yeah, so hard, he has hard. some very I good was, arguments. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't feel sympathetic to him, but he has some very good arguments. Well, when I when I teach the play, I think my students sort of struggle with, are these good arguments or are these sort of arguments that are made as a kind of display of reason? Like, like you know, this guy's a kind of sophist, <laughs> right? They're uh, both. That's the problem, right? They're really good. Yeah. Sophistical arguments, yeah. Uh, I think, and you know, life is complicated. And one of the profound deepness of Havel's plays is just how complicated life is. It's not straightforward. It's not easy to judge what's good and bad. I know that Weinick is a better human being than Steinick. But when I go to explain it, I have to make a long, complicated defense of Vinyak's, as I tried to do, Vinyak's uh, morality over Steinyak's. But Steinyak certainly, uh, you know, ha has, his, has his arguments. Right. I hate them, and he's wrong. Um, I actually have a question for you. What would, you know, we're both in, uh, if you will, in, in Vinyak and Steinyak's, Steinyak's class. What would we have done in, that, in those days? Right. Could you have done? I might have been able to be a dissident, although I don't know whether I'm courageous enough to tell you the truth. But it would be much more difficult for a man who has a family like you to say, I'm not only going to ruin my own future and my wife's future, but my kids will never be able to go to university and they'll end up, you know, not ever being able to get, get ahead. Yeah. Uh, Jan Skalud, who I knew quite well, the chairman of my department, uh, political science department, when I first went to Prague, his kids couldn't go to university because because he was labeled a dissident. Not he really wasn't one. But right, right. So yeah, it's it, hard. It's a it's a question that I always force my you know the the students when I teach when I teach dissidents or or Havel to ask themselves right what would what would you have had had the courage to do and. There's only one Václav Benda. Right. Yeah. There's the, I mean, if you just go by, you know, rough guesses as far as what percentage of people, you know, it's in a class of 20, it's probably one or two. Yeah. You know, so. so I, and I think this complication that the students are wrestling and it looks like justifications or hyperbole, it is, on the other hand, it isn't. And that's the genius of Havel is to still show what's morally right by this character, Vanek, who hardly says anything, but what he does, his actions uh, uh, show us. Uh, so uh, you asked me about this, it'll be my, actually, so if, if you look at the play, Platonic dialogue Lysis. It is the case that uh, Socrates and this young man Lysis talk about friendship and they confuse the hell out of themselves. They go around and they talk and they, I don't know what friendship is. I don't know. 
this? Is it, does like, 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 or does like, like the opposite? And they go back and forth. At the end, Lysa says, I haven't got a clue what friendship is. Socrates, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know either. On the other hand, if you look at what's happening in that dialogue, Socrates and Lysis show friendship. The, the scene shows friendship. They're kind to each other. They, they're not trying to top one another. They don't, they don't just attack each other. The relationship shows us uh, friendship. And in some ways, I think Havel does this as well with the Vanyak character. You don't see Vanyak making great speeches about courage and justice and honor and magnanimity, but he exhibits them. That's Havel's real brilliance to me. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, maybe I'll just ask you. We're getting to the end of our our time, but um, uh, my, you know, my sense is that these plays are are terrific ways, um, you know, to the to evoke the peculiar, uh, horrible reality of of communism. But they also tend, you know, as you are kind of suggesting, can transcend the specific historical context of, of communism in, in the former Czechoslovakia and, um, and, and get students to appreciate and, and just readers more generally, you know, questions of, of moral responsibility, questions of, of righteousness and, and self-righteousness, kind of the dangers of, of self-righteousness. Um, so, you know, do you have any kind of concluding, concluding thoughts on, on sort of these, these grander themes that the, the plays can evoke? Yes, of course. Uh, but I, I just like to say one of the things you uh, that you get from these plays is it's nice to read a little bit about totalitarianism, even its softer aspects, to understand just how lucky Americans are. You can see something sometimes by compared to what? And having lived in the communist world and having lived in Iraq where there's no rule of law, uh, it is the case that in the United States, some groups have suffered. I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for groups that have suffered in, the, uh, in, in, these, uh, in, our, in our own country. We've made some huge mistakes in our history. On the other hand, uh, the people in those countries, everybody suffered, except a really small elite of people who were vicious thugs, not businessmen. Right. Uh, so uh, one of the things you can, you, you can say by the absence of, by studying these eras of, of real totalitarianism, we, it makes you have a greater uh, appreciation of our own country and a greater appreciation uh, of trying to preserve what's good because let me tell you, Vanyak's character shows it's easy to criticize, but he himself shows how hard it is to think about a good institutions and put them put them in into practice. That's hard. It's is uh, uh, for all the revolutionaries in the world. Havel says, you know, it's easy to break apart a, a nice crystalline. Uh, chandelier, uh, but it's really hard to glue it back together. And and so uh, th this revolution in the communist world, all over the world, was meant to make everything just, uh, equality, uh, brotherhood, uh, freedom, and look where it, where, where it got people. So uh, good institutions should be cherished in, in, in many ways. Uh, and uh, we should understand that those institutions we have in the United States are, in a way, to work out our problems, uh, not to solve them. Uh, we need a kind of discourse. Uh, they are the mechanism by which political differences are worked out. Uh, they are not themselves going to work out the problems. And if you do away with those institutions, how would we work out our problems? Uh, that's, that's right. 
that's, that's, that's really right. so i think the the uh, um the sense of that there is a right way to do things is is apparent in Havel's plays but also the careful way in which he proceeds about trying to um dominate or uh, to control or to fix the future is also something we should think about a lot yeah and then maybe too we ought to say something at the end i mean i always sort of sitting back and thinking about um these three plays uh together right if you if you were hovel's uh hovel's agent or something right sitting in in uh in vienna or 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 berlin or wherever he was you know, and said, uh, Václav, I think you should write uh, three plays that, um, you know, evoke the grand themes of, of moral responsibility and, and self-righteousness and, and decency. But I think you should do it um, in plays that are extremely short with characters that you can count on one hand and in plays where pretty much <laughs> nothing is said that uh, appears to be meaningful, right? I mean, it's just an astonishing accomplishment artistically i think like you can yeah. read all, you can read all three of these plays what in like you know a couple hours and especially if you were in the stb and you weren't very smart you'd have no idea what was going on right. but they could actually undermine your country uh so uh well i think fun. it's been fun it's always good to talk to you uh, uh you and i have been uh i suppose spoiled by being utter czechophiles uh, right. it is a fascinating country and uh, if anybody goes they just don't go there in the summer with all the tourists uh and uh and uh, i i have to say one of the honors of my life was to get to meet uh and interview Václav Hal. he oh, really is an extraordinary incredible. man yeah, yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Jim, and uh, thanks to our listeners, and we'll be back uh, with another episode of the Enduring Interest podcast soon. Thanks, Jim. Uh, thank you, Flag. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the E-I-Pod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest.